Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will join us. May we see and discern more clearly your purposes, your your kingdom of love, and may, may we be more effective in presenting it to others. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number seven in the uh, quarterly, the J- book of James. And the, and the title this week is Taming the Tongue. Taming the Tongue. And, and it actually cites a memory verse out of Matthew, Matthew twelve thirty seven, Jesus speaking, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew twelve thirty seven. As you hear the, the that description, by your words you'll be justified, your words you'll be condemned, what comes to mind? What does that mean? My word is a lamp unto my feet. Yeah, that's God's word is a lamp to my feet, but by it says Jesus speaking, telling the Pharisees, By your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So it's not a matter of finding the right incantation and saying the right magic words, and if you do that in the right way, then you get saved. That's not what it's about? No. Or how about having the right words spoken over you in the right way when you're baptized? Is that what it's about? You know, some people actually believe this. It's very important to have the right words spoken in the right way. It doesn't count. Or is it a matter of having our words that come out of our mouth recorded in a heavenly deposition? And if we have the right words recorded in that deposition, then we get a good judgment. But if we have bad words, then we get a bad judgment. Is that, is that what it means? No. Here's my paraphrase of Matthew twelve thirty seven: The words you speak reveal the true condition of your heart, either healed or terminal. And that's all it means, really, I think. That your, the way you speak, your actions, your conduct reveal the condition of your character. The lesson states that the words hold tremendous power, either for good or evil, whether spoken or written. Remember the adage, the pen is mightier than the sword? Why is this so? Why is it that words have power? And how do they have power? They can hurt. They can hurt. They can encourage, discourage. Yes. The words, once they're spoken, you can't take them back. Once they're out there, you can't take them back. And even if you apologize and say, I'm sorry, the person still remembers those words you've spoken. So it's hard. Okay, Russell? The sword is an instrument of coercion. The sword is the instrument of coercion. Okay. Uh, And words can be used to enforce the pressure as well, but they can also be used. So I like where you're going with this. Sword coerces, words can convert. And and what is it that actually ultimately has more power over people? Holding them in line by threat of punishment or winning their hearts to loyalty? Now words, words actually represent ideas, don't they? And isn't the idea that is conveyed or, or represented by the word that really has the power? It's the idea, not the word itself. You know, this is important when you think of Bible inspiration because some people believe the actual words of the Bible are inspired. But they're not. If the actual words were inspired, you can never do a translation into any other language. You'd have to read the Hebrew or the Greek because it's not the same word once you translate it. It's just a you know, translation of that. It's a new word. To give the to communicate the idea, it's the idea that matters. That's what really matters. And ideas can become part of our minds. They can get into our thought processes. They become part of our belief systems. They they become like code in a computer. That's what they do. Ideas become like code in a computer, 
And, and changing our beliefs, our views, our way of seeing the world, they can change the way we see ourselves, the way we see God, the way we relate to others. Consider for a moment how you came to speak your primary language. Not read and write. Speak your primary language. How did that come about? Was it po- Now, is your primary language coded in your DNA? No. Could you, growing up in the home in which you grew up, used your willpower to speak a different language? Could you have avoided learning this language? Now, now notice, this language that you speak, which is not in your DNA, which, which was assimilated uh, unavoidably. When was the last time you got up, and let's just assume your language is English, when was the last time you got up in the morning and said, you know, today I'm going to think in English? It never happens. It's there all the, time, all the time, automatically. Everything gets processed through it. When you look outside, if you're a primary English speaker, you, you see a tree. You don't see a baum, German word for tree. You see a tree. Everything gets processed through this. Do you think English language is the only thing that got uploaded into your self this way? Many ideas... Many beliefs, many perspectives, many viewpoints, many schemas, constructs, ways of relating got uploaded before you even had awareness to think about it. And it's still, just like English, you don't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to think I'm going to think this way today. I'm going to view the world through this lens today. We do it all the time. Now as we grow older and we get awareness, we can actually contemplate and reflect. Some people learn a second or third or fourth language. They can think in different. They can actually get up in the morning and say, "I'm going to think in this language today." I can't do that. I have one language. But we can look back and look at the ideas, the beliefs, the perspectives we've we've held, and we can reprocess those, including the perspectives we hold about ourselves, about God, about the world around us. A child whose parent tells them critical words, not once, but repetitively over time, they grew up in that environment. Or the parent who maybe doesn't use critical words just gives the child the brush off. Doesn't have time. Does, gives them a cold shoulder. Sends a message. That gets internalized. By the time the child's old enough to think for themselves, they may have forgotten those experiences. Like how many of you remember the first time somebody pointed to your nose and said nose and you learned how to say nose? Do you remember that? We don't remember how that got in there. We just know it's a nose now. And we don't remember the experiences, but now we have a perspective like, you know, I'm not good. I'm a bad little girl. I'm a bad little boy. I'm not very successful. What I do is, isn't, isn't right. Can it affect how we approach others? Yes. Words can be very powerful. It's not just the words, though. It's the tone and the voice. The, the inflection, the body language. The eye contact, the demeanor. And this, and this communicates a lot too. And this is where there's a lot of mixed signals sometimes. People, the words will say one thing, but the body language says something else. You can feel that, that disconnect sometimes. But you can, you can pick up on what really is most powerful by just thinking about talking to your pet. If you talk to your pet and you say to your pet, I hate you, you're the stupidest little dog. What's that dog gonna do? If you say, I love you! What's going to happen? It's going to run for the corner. See, you can pick up on what, what people pick up on as well. It's not just the words. It's the underlying tone and attitude that is conveyed in the 
in the nonverbal that really sets the stage for how things are perceived. In the movie My Cousin Vinny, Vinny's cousin was arrested uh, and, and charged with uh, committing a murder, which he did not commit. And in the beginning of the movie, when the sheriff's investigating him, he um, describes the scenario and said, you murdered those boys. And Vinny's cousin goes, I murdered those boys? Like, what? In the courtroom trial, when trial came, they called the sheriff up and they put him on the stand. And they said, when you accused him of murdering those boys, what were his exact words? And he opened his nose and said, his exact words were, I murdered those boys. (laughs) Now, do you see how you can actually have a gross misunderstanding when you go only with the words? This is what happens in the Bible. These words are missing when you read the transcripts. When you read the transcripts of Jesus saying, you were whitewashed sepulchres full of dead men's bones, you don't know the tone. You don't know the tears in his eyes. You don't know the heartbreaking grief that, that was conveyed there. And so some will read that and they will read into it a tone of anger, a tone of, of criticism, a tone of cruelty. But it, we don't get the tone. We just get the words. This is from the book Christ Object Lessons, page 99. The leaven hidden in the flour works invisibly to bring the whole mass under its leavening process. So the leaven of truth works secretly, silently, steadily to transform the soul. The natural inclinations are softened and subdued. New thoughts, new feelings, new motives are implanted by what? How do they get implanted? What's implanting these new thoughts, these new motives? What is it that's doing it? The leaven of truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth is is conveyed its words, conveying ideas of truth that are getting assimilated into the mind. The new thoughts, new feelings, new motives are implanted. A new standard of character is set up, hyphen, the life of Christ. The mind is changed. The faculties are roused to action in new lines. Man is not endowed with new faculties. Hear this? Man is not endowed with new faculties, but the faculties he has are sanctified. The conscience is awakened. We are endowed with traits of character that enable us to do service for God. So what do you think about that passage? It's powerful, isn't it? So what is the leaven? Truth. Truth about what? Primary truth. There's obviously all truth, but you know it's primarily not the truth. Yes, truth about God is the primary truth. This is life eternal that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ. Why is the truth about God the most important truth? If we're to be like God, we have to know what He's like. If we're to be like Him, we have to know Him. I'm just thinking that leaven in bread dough is kind of involuntary. You know what I mean? It's going to impact the bread dough. Once it's in. Once it's in. Exactly. But you you have to be open to truth before it can get in and, and have any impact. But once it's in. Yeah. Then tr- I mean, ha- how many of you have come to a new truth and you've taken it into your heart and you accepted it, you've believed it, believed it, and then something begins changing. Can you see cascades of change that happen in you from that truth that are more than just conscious choice? Sure. Yeah, yeah, so that's a great point. So what happens, 
See, lies are displaced. And remember that cascade of destruction we went through, the falling dominoes, okay? Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Truth believed destroys lies and wins us back to trust. See how that works? Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Truth believed destroys lies and wins us back to trust. Broken love and trust result in Fear and selfishness, restoration of trust results in opening the heart and experience God's love. It says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. So we experience a restoration of love. Fear and and a a casting out, because love casts out fear. So truth believed restores trust. Trust in relation with God, we experience love, which casts out fear. Fear and selfishness result in acts of sin, protecting self. But trust and love, love in the heart, results in acts of righteousness, giving, service, helping others. Uh, acts of sin result in damage to, damage to our hearts, minds, characters, relationships. Acts of righteousness result in growth in godliness and spreading the kingdom. Just the opposite, but it all starts with, what's the, what's the linchpin What it starts with? Truth. It starts with the truth, to displace the lies, to win us to trust. This is how it starts. A few pages later in the same book, Prayer's Object Lessons, page 109, we read, the leaven of truth, there it is again, leaven of truth, works a change in the whole man, making the coarse refined, the rough gentle, the selfish generous. By it, the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I love this one. What piece of information was added in this one that wasn't in the first one? What's the blood? What is the blood? Okay. Yes. A a metaphor is decoded for us in this one, at least by this author. Their understanding of the metaphor is that the blood of the lamb represents truth. Truth. What was that citation again? Uh, Christ Object Lessons 102. Often, uh, the blood of the lamb, often spoken of in the Bible... Cleansed by the blood, washed in the blood. See, what happens, what is being cleansed by the blood? The heart and mind, right. If we decode it now, cleansed by the truth. Truth is displacing lies, winning us to trust, you see? So, why is it important we move past symbols to reality? I have patients who have dreams, and they often are quite disturbed. They'll come in very upset about a dream they've had. Because they don't understand what dreams are. Dreams are simply symbolic picture representation of emotional content. That's all they are. Have you ever played the game Pictionary? Somebody has a uh, card, and or you have the card, and you've got to draw, get everybody to say what's on the card. You can't use words or, or numbers. You have to draw a picture. And your word on your card is tranquility. What do you draw? What do you draw? A lake, maybe? Peaceful lake? Okay, we... But, uh, maybe maybe a beach scene, something like this. Okay, we all get why that's connected there, but it's it's not about a beach. It's not about a lake. It's not about water. It's not about swimming. It's not about sunshine. Those symbols could be meaning all that stuff too. This is how dreams work. And so, classic dream that most people sometime in their life have had something similar is the dream where you're in church on the pulp up and up in front in your underwear. Most people had a dream similar to this. It's symbolic. It just simply means you're, you're not afraid that, that you're going to end up in church like this if you actually understand the meaning. What it means is that you're afraid of embarrassment. You're afraid it could happen before your first starting 
pitching for your varsity pitching team. You're starting your first game tomorrow. And, and you're afraid you're gonna, you're gonna fail. It could be your first speech. It could be your, you're gonna perform on, in, in your recital tomorrow. Um, something when you're gonna get up in front, and, and, and you're afraid you're gonna, you don't wanna be embarrassed. You don't wanna be humiliated. And you have a dream like this. If you don't understand the meaning and you take it concretely, you might stop going to church. <laughs> you see? Well, likewise, the Bible is full of symbols. Many people fail to understand the symbols. So the metaphor of the blood, how is the blood typically used in our descriptions in Christianity? Jesus is in heaven pleading his blood to the Father. But if we translate the symbol for the blood, which is truth, does Jesus actually need to plead truth to to his dad? Hey, dad, you got something wrong here. Here's more truth. Truth, dad, truth. Does, Does the father need truth pled to him? But but who who does need truth pled to them? We do. we do exactly right, exactly right. So when you read, he's before the Father pleading his blood. Yes, he is. To whom though? Pardon? To us. To us. Yes, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible says it's it's, it's uh, Jesus said to his disciples, "It's good for you that I leave, because if I don't leave, the Comforter won't come. When the Comforter comes, he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. Think that through." He's going to speak only what he hears. Who's he listening to? Jesus. He's Jesus' representative on earth. And so when Jesus is before the Father pleading, he's pleading via the Holy Spirit to your heart and mind. Holy Spirit takes those pleas and brings them to your heart. My blood, I died for you. I love you. Here's the truth of who my Father is. Here's the truth of how my kingdoms were. Won't you let me heal you? Won't you let me save you? It's the Holy. It's Jesus pleading to us who are in darkness of distortion and lies. Now, why might a, an apologist for the Lord, that's somebody who's speaking to try to make the Lord look good, present the idea that Jesus is pleading to his Father? Why might someone do that if it isn't for that Father's need? If the Father doesn't need more truth presented to him, why might one present Jesus in such a way, pleading his blood to the Father? Who, who would need that view? Our behalf. Yes! That would be for people who have such a corroded view of God that they see him in such horrible views that they need something to take their fear away enough that they feel safe enough to actually get to know him a little bit. And as they get to know him a little bit, then they'll come to know him more. And as they come to know him more, they'll realize, hey, you know what? John 16, 26, Jesus speaking, I will not pray the Father for you because the Father loves you himself. But there are some people that are so terrified, they need this sometimes. You'll get pictures of this type of speaking where God can be actually misrepresented in a certain way by his own spokespersons for the need of a person whose mind is so dark. Ahab, wanting to go to war with Ramoth Gilead, asked Jehoshaphat to team up with him and go to war. And Jehoshaphat asked for a prophet of the Lord. Rahab says, I hate the prophets of the Lord. They never say anything good. But they actually got one, which was Micaiah. And Micaiah comes in, and long story short, says, the Lord called a meeting of his angels in heaven and said, how can we trick Ahab to going to his death against Ramoth Gilead? And one spirit said this, another said that, and finally one said, I know, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And the Lord said, go and do it. That's, I, I'm quoting scripture to you. Now, do we actually believe that the Lord sends spirits to lie? and deceive and to trick people. Then why is it presented like this? Because who does Ahab worship? 
He's worshiping Baal. Baal. His view of God is an authoritarian dictator God. His view of God is the power over God. He's at that very primitive level one, two of moral development where uh, the, uh, God establishes his authority by the exertion of power over other gods. And so the God Yahweh is saying through the prophet, hey, I'm the one who did that to try to trick you. So the reality is you're going to die if you go out there. So it's a message that, to Ahab basically saying, hey, don't go to war. You're going to die. He's trying to save him in a language that could get through to Ahab. That's all it was. But some people look at that and they draw and they don't see God of grace willing to step down and stoop and speak a language that a darkened king could, a dark, uh, the mind of a darkened king could understand. But when you think about the book of Job, God has allowed evil to work in this world. And that's what's happening in that story. Yep. God is allowing evil to play out, not so we'll hate God. Yep. But so that we'll hate sin. That's right. He wants us to see what sin is like. Exactly. What is it like to be out of harmony from God's design? If God protects us from the effects of evil, which is what we all want, <laughs> God protect me from the effects of evil, then we won't really understand. That's correct. Why does a child learn not to touch the hot stove? Only because mommy says not to do it? Because they ultimately did, didn't they? And mommy didn't spray numbing medicine on their hand before they touched that soap. If mommy would have sprayed numbing medicine on first, they might not have learned as quickly, right? And so every one of us in eternity, we're going to hate sin. We'll never want it again. So this idea of blood, one misunderstanding is that Jesus is pleading his blood to his father. There's no need. By the way, blood can also represent, as far as I, from scripture, the life. So in this case, it's truth and the perfect life or the perfect character of Christ. And I think Christ meant both of these when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. The blood representing the truth, which wins us to trust, and the flesh representing his character, his life that he's developed for us that we internalize. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Did the Father need either one of those? Did the Father need the truth to win him to trust? Did the Father need a new character developed by Christ? No, but we need both. It's for us that this is, this is done. So, the, But another way, the blood of Jesus is taken into the sanctuary in heaven in order to remove the record of sin from the heavenly ledgers. This is the way it's classically taught, the blood, erasing the record of sin. It may not be heavenly sanctuary, it might just be in the record book. Some people say, well, the blood of Christ is applied to my record in heaven and it cleanses my record of sin. Tell me what's, what's right or wrong about that idea. There's not a changed heart. There's not a changed heart. Well, blood is life. Blood is life. And when Jesus bled out, life left him. Life left him. So, and his blood was his, you know, that was symbolic. So what do you say to the people who say, no, 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 you've got it backwards, Joe. It's, blood's not life. Blood is his, is the, is the death penalty paid. That blood symbolizes the penalty, the death of Jesus that paid the payment for you. And, and that payment, that blood is applied. Your payment is now being applied to your account in heaven. What do you say to that? Do you not, am I the only one that's ever heard this presented this way? <laughs> or has anybody else heard it presented this way? What do you say to them? Payment to who? Payment to who? Good. Excellent. That's a great thing to say first off. Payment to who? And, that, and, that, well, and, and, and the classic answer, if you actually push that, they'll go, well, I don't know, but we just take it on faith. That's, I, I've, I had this conversation with hundreds of people and theologians who hold this view that payment is being made. 
ultimately, if you press them, they'll, and I actually had one very famous theologian that you guys would recognize. I want to mention a name. They said, nope, it's not to God. He doesn't pay it to God. I said, what does he pay it to? The person said, the law. I said, but isn't the law a transcript of God's character? Yes. Then who's he paying it to? I mean, do the dots, connect the dots. It's not a big leap. The law is an expression of the character of God, right? <laughs> paying to sin. See, this is like uh, Aslan giving his life to the white witch to have the um, son of Ad- uh, Adam released, right? This is this was actually a theory that some put forward too that he pays it to Satan or pays it to sin. Well, sometimes they use the word ransom. Ransom. So let's so let's reason our way through that. Let's reason our way through that. Because the Bible uses the term a ransom. A ransom, give my life a ransom for many. Jesus said this. What is the function of a ransom? What does it actually do? It is the price necessary to secure freedom from captive. Yes. So then, okay, ransom. That's what a ransom does. What is it then that holds us captive? We are held captive or in bondage by two factors. Anybody name them? Our choice, our sinful nature, and the lies that we believe about God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. So he, by his life, death, resurrection, reveals the truth, which destroys lies and so sets us free in that way. And in his humanity, uh, developed a perfect human character, which he offers to us, that sets us free from our nature of self-centeredness. So the things that we needed, he provided. So who is the ransom paid to? Who gets, who receives the truth that sets him free from lies? We do. We do. Who receives a new nature, a character that sets us free from our carnal nature? We do. So we are the ones who set free. It, metaphorically, the person in renal failure, their, their, their father who loves them donates them a kidney to save them from death and renal failure. Could we say and understand the meaning of, well, his father paid a high price to save him? We could say that, couldn't we? Does that mean it's a legal price? That it's a price he had to pay to the administrator so they'd be willing to pardon him from his renal failure? No. It was the price necessary by his condition to remedy what was defective in him to restore him to life. When Adam sinned, the human species, because as the scripture teaches over and over, we were all in Adam. All of us are descended from him. He changed himself. He became defective. He was deviant from God's design. He's in a terminal condition. HIV infected man and woman get together and have a baby born HIV infected. What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. But as a condition, which is now terminal, we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity, according to Psalm 51. We're born in a condition. It's not our fault. We didn't only feel guilty for it. We didn't choose it. And because of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to choose something different. Would the use of leaven be because it's transformational and actually acts in a magical way? I mean, you don't really, especially back then, they had no way of seeing how that worked. They just knew it did. Yes, I think that's why it was used. Faith. Mm-hmm. Right. So, the idea of the, of the blood being applied to the sanctuary, the blood is metaphorical. What about the sanctuary? When you think heavenly sanctuary, what are you thinking? 
a building in heaven. So, it's, so this is what's often represented. Uh, we have a building in heaven, and, God, and Jesus is in heaven in a smoke-filled room, squeezing his hands and pouring out drops of blood. <laughs> is, that what, is that what we think is going on? What's the sanctuary a symbol of? I will make a sanctuary that I might dwell among you. Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Hmm. Know ye not that... Yeah, well, let me read some scriptures. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 9, 16, 17. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You are God's building. Don't you know that you yourselves, the church or God's temple, and that God's Spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Or First Peter 2, 4, and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God. Or Ephesians two nineteen through twenty two. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Do we, when we think of the heavenly sanctuary, think of a building built out of pearls and gold and bricks and mortars of a heavenly substance, of an inanimate material? Does God want to dwell in a building of an inanimate material? Where does he want to dwell? Yes, yes. So the sanctuary where the blood is applied The cleansing of the sanctuary is really what? Our hearts. That's our minds. Pardon? Our minds. Our minds. So let me read to you. This is one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This was written in um, Manuscript Releases, Volume 2. It was written in, it doesn't have a date, Um, Volume 2, page 97. See what you think of this. Your faculties are separate and distinct, yet each is dependent for its success upon the other. So each day God works with his building, stroke upon stroke, to perfect the structure, which thus grows into a holy temple for the Lord. One stone mislaid affects the whole building. The figure represents human character, which is to be wrought upon point by point. There is not to be flaw in it, for it is the Lord's building. No, the Lord's... Who's doing the building? The Lord is doing the building. This is not a, a works-based system to put fear that you have to do all this stuff. This is a process of allowing the Lord to work in you. It is the Lord who works in you to will and do according to his good pleasure. Every stone must be perfectly laid that it may endure the pre- pressure placed upon it. God warns you and every worker to take heed how you build so that your building may bear the test of storm and tempest because it is riveted to the eternal rock. So how do you build? How do you build? 
Are you just a, a completely passive participant, or do you have an active role to play? How do you build? By yourself, on your own, in your own strength? No. Receive the truth. Notice what it says. The tempest because it is riveted to the eternal rock. One of the most key elements to building a, a temple for the Lord is connecting yourself to the Lord. Staying, and so there is a work, if you want to call it a work, to do in connecting your heart to the Lord, isn't there? Opening your heart, spending time with Him, pouring yourself out to Him, trusting Him. An act of trust is a choice, isn't it? But what is the temple in heaven? I'm going to keep reading. Okay. Take heed how you build. Every hour may be spent in placing the stone on the sure foundation, ready for the day of test and revelation when we shall be seen just as we are. This warning God presents to me as essential in your case. You're speaking to your person. He loves you with a love that is immeasurable. He loves your, your brethren in the faith, and he works with them to the same end that he works with you. His church upon the earth is to assume divine proportions before the world. As a temple composed of living stones, every stone emitting light. I love that, every stone emitting light. So it's not just this, this brick and mortar stuff. It's a stone that's actually shining light out. This is a really cool, cool vision. This building is to be a light to the world, a city on a hill which cannot be hid. It is composed of stones laid close together, stones fitting, fitting to stone, making a solid building. All the stones are not of the same form or shape. Some are large, some are small, but each has its own crevice to fill. And the value of each stone is determined by the light it reflects to the world. Not by the size, by the light. What, what, what's that mean by the light it reflects to the world? What's it talking about? The light of what? And the truth is truth primarily of what? God's character, methods, that's right. This is God's plan. And he would have all who profess to believe his word fill their respective places in the great grand work for this time. Every mental and physical power is to be cultivated. For all the powers are essential to make the church a building which will represent the wisdom and character of the great designer. What is to be the building? The church. The church. Does that mean a denomination? Is that what it means, a denomination? No. We are to cultivate the talents given to us. They are his gifts and are to be used in the right re- in their right relation to each other so as to make a perfect whole. God gives the talents, the powers of the mind, Man makes the character. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? How does man make the character? And it comes down to the primary issue is not one of working to be good, working to be good, working to be good, working to be good. It's one of working to distrust yourself and trust God. That's the primary work. I'm very clear here. It's not a system of we're working to perfect ourselves for heaven. No, we're working to trust God with the outcomes of our lives. That's the work. And it is a work. I would tell you, you'll be tempted. You'll be tempted by powerful feelings. You'll be tempted by what's going to happen to your kids. You're going to be tempted by to take control for yourself and, and try to force your way onto a circumstance. Rather than saying, hey, I'm going to trust God with the outcome. Isn't that where we're tempted? The mind is the Lord's garden, and man 
must cultivate it earnestly. The Lord's church is composed of his living, working agencies who derive their power to act from the author and finisher of their faith. Where do we derive our power? From the author and finisher of our faith. Those are capitalized in this document. The great work resting upon God, individual workers, is to be carried forward in a symmetrical harmony. And then, this one may more directly, this is out of um, Manuscript Release 231. The first tabernacle, built according to God's directions, was indeed blessed of him. The people thus were preparing themselves to worship in the temple not made with human hands. A temple in the heavens. The stones of the temple built by Solomon were all prepared at, at the quarry and then brought to the temple site. They came together without the sound of axe or hammer. The timbers were also fitted in the forest. The furniture was likewise brought to the house prepared for use. Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth, we had leaven of truth, now we have cleaver of truth, has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and is fitting this people who profess to be the children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work for us. We are taken from the quarry of the world. The material must not be a dead substance, but living souls. And these souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world where the hand of God can fit them for the, for the temple in heaven. We are here as probationers, and we must pass under the hand of God. All rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed. We must be stones fitted for the building. We are brought into church capacity with defects of character, but we must not retain them. We must be fitted and squared for the building. We must be laborers together with God, for we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. Now, what do you understand the temple in heaven is? After these two, if you, if you, if you value what the, what the apostle said, and I've read those scriptures already, you are living stones being built together in a house for the Lord, and this is expanded on that same theme. What do you understand the temple in heaven is built out of? God's living saints and people, intelligent beings. It's a real physical place, guys, built out of intelligent living beings. And you get a little glimmer of it, I think, in the first chapter of Job, where all the sons of God had come together around him. I think there's a little glimmer of that. But when they built the tabernacle in the wilderness, what was built after the replica of the one in heaven? Yes, after a pattern of the one shown him in heaven. But it says, not after the, in other words, Moses was shown a pattern of the one in heaven. If I have a pattern for a dress, you're a seamstress, and I give a pattern for the dress. Is that the same thing as looking at the dress? No. No, he was given a pattern of the one in heaven. He wasn't shown that sanctuary in heaven. He was shown a pattern. Why does it say a pattern of the one in heaven? A pattern, yes. Just like the pattern of a dress is not the same thing as the dress. It's just a blueprint. It's an outline. It's a symbolic representation. Have you ever? I know you've taken a pattern and laid it out. Patterns to me look nothing like the actual end product. When I when I've seen patterns laid out, I'm looking. It's like, how does that work? That doesn't look like a dress. Does it look really look like a dress? Unless in your mind you're already going through and seeing how it all fits together and reshapes itself once it's done. Well, the blueprint of a home. If you just see a pattern of a dress laid out, it often doesn't look like a dress to me. I think the, um, the leap has been that in times past, we have often said, oh, the pattern, he was shown a pattern, and it was of a building. And so the, the pattern also 
was the same building in heaven. Right. And so that, that transition has been made without any carrying that on to the conclusion or whatever. So, yes. Yes. That's because it was a building, you know, inner court, outer court, you know, holy place, most holy place. Yes. It had a design. And yes. Just didn't. All symbolic, and nobody has taken the time, very few people have taken the time to actually decode the symbols. To decode the symbols. What's actually, just look at the grand theme of what's happening. What's happening in the grand theme is people are outside, you know, in the grand theme, where, where do we find God? In the grand, in in the temple, in the most holy place, and where do we find the nations of the world? Outside, outside, and separated, and disconnected, and a barrier is between. And there's a way back into the holy place, but what is that way? Through all the different ways, it's through through somehow connecting yourself with the blood or the flesh of that of that sacrificial animal. So the general theme is simply: you can't get back in the presence of God without connecting with Christ and partaking of Him. That's what it's trying to say. You can't get there. Now, we can go through lots of details of what those symbols represent. The brazen altar represents the unconverted heart, and that's why when the uh, the tribes other than Levi, other than the priesthood, would sacrifice their sacrificial um, uh, animal, the blood would be poured at the base of the altar because the entire foundation needed to be changed, and the blood was planted on, placed on the horns, on the four horns, because the horns represent power, and this is our selfish human power, which needs to be converted and cleansed by the blood of Christ, our character, and then the animals burned on the altar, the spirit coming in to renew the inner man is the, represented by the inner organs. This is, the, this is where the brazen altar was. And that represents the unconverted people coming to initial conversion. But the priests, which one of the priests, daily priests in their white robes represent what? Know ye not you're a priesthood of believers, right? You're a priesthood of believers. This is what we are. And the white robes represent the character of Christ. The high priest represents Jesus. The daily priests represent all of those who have taken Christ's character upon themselves and are covered in his robes of righteousness. They're the daily priests going out and doing ministry for the Lord. And so the daily priest, when the priest would confess sin for their personal sin, it was not, the blood was not taken to the brazen altar. The blood was taken into the golden altar. And the golden altar, they put it on the four horns, and those horns are much smaller. Why a golden altar? Because they've been converted. Their heart is no longer brazen to God. It's golden. It's been reborn. But yet they're not perfect yet. They still have besetting sins, and they stumble and fall. And that's why the blood is applied to those horns as we continue to grow and be sanctified slowly over time. Additionally, incense represents the prayers. Where is the incense burned? Brazen or golden? Golden, because only the converted pray, and the prayers go up before God. In the in the uh, sanctuary, the holy place, all covered in gold, over the walls, everything's covered in gold, represents the church. And what's in the church? We have the lamp. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And the lamp represents both Christ and where the, where the wicks burn represent we are a lamp. We are, we are the light into the world. And only the high priest would come every day, morning and evening. And the high priest and high priest only would trim the wicks, showing that only the Lord Jesus Christ works in our heart to trim away the chaff so that we can burn brighter for him. And then every Sabbath, the priests would join themselves together in the holy place and just the priests with the high priest and they would eat the showbread. On Sabbath, showing that we join ourselves together on Sabbath to partake of the Word of God together with our high priest from heaven as we're nurtured. And as we look back to the most holy place, what do we see? We see there's something obstructed. We want to see God more clearly. We can see some Shekinah back there, but something's blocking our view. We can't really see it clearly. And what's in the way? As we look, as we're standing there literally looking 2,000 years ago, trying to see more clearly God, we want to see Him. There's something in our way. A veil. And what's on the veil? Angels. Angels. What is this telling us in the story? 
angels ascending up with our prayers. Who is it that obstructs our view of God? Angels. And what kind of a being is Satan? Angels. He's an angel. And does, and does Satan come as an angel of, with red horns and demon pitchfork? Is that how he comes? No. Or does he come as an angel of light? How did Satan come to Jesus in the wilderness? Did he come as an angel of, of evil or an angel of light? And so we find these beautiful angels sewn on the veil, but they're blocking, obstructing our view of God. This is Satan, who in heaven began his lies as the angel of light, coming from God's very presence, telling his lies, which, which began setting up barriers and obstructing people's ability to see God clearly. So the angels embroidered on the curtain are the evil angels. This is what I believe it is, yes. Why do I believe this? Look at the. Well, just, I don't know, I've never heard that before. It represents two things. No, what, are the, what are the two things that separate us from God? Lies told by Satan. <laughs> lies told by Satan and her own carnal nature. And so at the cross, what happens at the cross? Yeah. What happens at the cross? The veil is rent from top to bottom, right? What is that saying? I've destroyed the... And what does it say in Hebrews 2.14? That by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Hebrews 2.14. By Christ's death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. And at his death, what got destroyed? The veil. Okay? That's what got destroyed because that's what separates us. And thus a new and living way is opened. A way through what? Through all the lies and distortions. Back into unity with God. And some could also say that the veil represented our own fallen nature that was a result of believing the lies and Christ destroyed that at the cross too and healed and cleansed the humanity he took upon himself. So you can say that as well if you wanted. It's no problem. But then you see all these symbols fit together. We have to go beyond the symbols and start getting into reality. God wants a people that when he comes, we'll be able to look at him face to face. He said, we shall see him face to face for we shall be like him. We can't get to be like him if we live in childish thought processes, always living in fear and insecurity, hiding behind stuff because we're afraid of walking into his presence. Now what you need to do is make a DVD of this. I've already done it. Wait a minute, in slow motion, (laughs) and go through it just like you did. There's too many people that really are messed up on this. I'm serious. Would you guys like a, a, should we do a seminar and a DVD on the sanctuary and its symbols? Did we spend an entire quarter on the sanctuary? We did. And there's a whole multiple lessons I went through with notes that has it all outlined step by step. One condensed, see, like not a 13 week series, a thing that makes it condensed and, and plain. Like a lesson study. Yeah. Okay. All right. So maybe I am working on uh, in the near future. I've got a new, a new. In fact, we're going to go ahead and and show you what we've got going today. Since we brought that up, it's a good breaking point. We've got several projects we've been working on. The Journal of the Watcher. I wrote it over the, oh, we started this project probably seven, eight years ago. And then Lewis Johnson, who was an illustrator, started illustrating more than two years ago. And it's been a long labor of love to get this uh, going. Let me tell you a little about it. And this is an electronic ebook illustrated. Every page is available. Uh, every page is an illustration and it's available in either one of your app stores. The uh, Google Droid version has been available since October 1. The iOS Apple version is coming out tonight, tomorrow, the next day. It'll be available any, any moment. The Journal of the Watcher Written by Timothy R. Jennings Illustrated by Lewis Johnson. Read by Kevin Barbary.
published by Come and Reason Ministries in conjunction with Linux Publishing. Every page will have an audio score just like that, every page. It starts out, this is the very next page, where King Nebuchadnezzar is having his dream and it says, and that's a quote from scripture, while lying in my bed, I saw a vision in my mind, a holy watcher came down from heaven. And this idea that God has his watchers behind the scenes, watching everything that is transpiring uh, on earth and keeping careful record of all that has happened. And those, uh, I'm going to, as I walk you through here right now, I'm just going to give you a sampling of some of the pictures. I'm not going to play all the audio because it takes too long. I will play three at the end just to give you a flavor of three at the end. But it starts out with this and then it goes to the journal. The watcher will tell you a little about who they are and where they're coming from and how God has been keeping record for the end of time to help the the people living at the end of time prepare for what's about to come. And this is a picture of the watcher, and we were told by the, day, uh, the creator this day would come a day that you would need to know what we have observed. It ties everything also, if you'll notice in this paragraph, um, they uh, tie everything to God's scripture. So most of the paragraphs as we go through, you'll notice right here, see, there's a little parenthetical. They don't speak it, you won't hear it, but if you want to stop and look it up, there's a parenthetical where it shows where these ideas are coming from, from Scripture. So it's tied to Scripture all the way through. And then, this is Lucifer in heaven, before his fall. Is it cool? Yeah, Lewis is amazing. It's really amazing. And the first sentient being Jesus created was a sum of perfection, beauty and intelligence and so forth. It talks about that. And then it talks about how Lucifer become infatuated with himself. He's out now deceiving intelligent beings, trying to woo them to himself. Uh, it, and I'm skipping. I'm skipping many pictures. It's not just jumping. So there's a whole lot you're not seeing. We're now in the middle of creation week. And uh, this is uh, basically separating the lands from the waters. You like these images? Aren't they power? Aren't they great? Yeah, they're amazing. Uh, this is uh, creating the fish. Uh, this is the temptation of Eve and, uh, and the serpent. You notice in the, in the background how the serpent has wings here? Yeah, he's, he's made to crawl on his belly later. And uh, did God really tell, say, yeah, you eat, you will die, and it goes through all this. But it tells it from the, our perspective. This whole story is told through the lens of the law of love and how God, everything was built to operate in the law of love and how everything in the Old Testament, all the stories are really stories about God's trustworthiness, whether you can trust God or whether or, or, or Satan is uh, misrepresenting God. That's what it, and it comes out over and over. This is Lucifer, or Satan now, leading people into violence and violence all the time. Genesis chapter 6. And you see, it's, uh, Satan was alarmed when God announced his plan to save mankind. The evil one recognized his victory was not assured, his triumph not complete, his kingdom not secure. He realized he must work with all his power to oppose God's plan and, if possible, pre- prevent the promised one from ever coming to earth. So he inflamed men's fears and aroused their passions. Cruelty, abuse, and violence increased. Minds were darkened. C- kindness disappeared, and men killed for the sport of it. See? And this will have a score with it and a professional reader reading it. And then... It goes into the flood and why the, with, with heartbreaking sadness, God chose to put his violent, out of control children to rest in the grave, suspend them in time in order to allow his healing plan. So this is not an act of punishment. This is an act of mercy because there's only one righteous man left on the earth. And if Satan succeeds in destroying him, there's nobody left for God to work with on earth. So it's telling his perspective from the watchers. They see what's happening. This is, uh, we've jumped, we've jumped through a lot of stories and we're into 
the captivity in Egypt now. And this is Pharaoh becoming angry at the, at the, uh, as the, at the people of, of Israel. And uh, do you like the imagery, though? Isn't these great pictures? And there's going to be a whole bunch on the sanctuary, and you'll see inside the sanctuary. This is now when they've gone into um, rebellion against God, and they're offering their children to Molech. See this little baby? Here's Molech. And this is what was happening here, and how um, Satan recognized the danger of the lessons of the sanctuary service, if they should be understood. He immediately introduced distortions in the mind of God's helpers on earth. He seduced them with heathen practices and further twisted their concept of God. And you'll see that all these stories are really back and forth. Is God the kind of being Jesus revealed, or is God some sadistic being you've got to appease with, an, with a animal and baby sacrifices, you see? And this is the conflict going back and forth. And then this is Daniel in the lion's den. We've, we've, we've skipped over so much in here. But all these images. This is uh, baby Jesus and, and just being born. This is Jesus in the wilderness. And there is Satan coming as an angel to tempt him in the wilderness. Turn these uh, stones into bread. This is Herod's temple. And uh, all the way through we have this progression. This is Jesus with the woman at the well. And you've got that whole story and that, co- that conversation going on. This is Jesus healing, uh, healing the sick and the, and the lame. This is the woman caught in adultery. And uh, telling a story there. And... This is uh, now Jesus after Gethsemane or at Gethsemane where he's fallen down. He's fatigued. He's gone through the, we've already gone through a whole bunch of images and storyline. And uh, an angel came from heaven to strengthen him. Do you like these pictures? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is now, they're coming to arrest Jesus. Satan panicked. His hatred of Christ knew no end. He couldn't get uh, Jesus to act, self, act on selfish human emotion. Then he would bring coercive pressure to bear and so forth. And Judas, one of his helpers, came and betrayed him. Uh, this is him uh, with Pilate. Here's your king. When Pilate uh, heard uh, this, they became f- fearful of his own position and so forth. So, uh, This is at the cross. Love and selfishness meet face to face at the cross. This is the guards guarding the tomb. Uh, this is after his resurrection. We've got a resurrection scene and so forth. But this is after the resurrection, putting your hand, uh, you know, Thomas, doubting Thomas. Uh, this is uh, now post all that. This is the dark ages. This is now how the church is being corrupted in the dark ages, using coercive power and false ideas of God come. And we go and talk about how evolutionary theory comes in, quoting from Peter and so forth. And then... Um, this is the new heaven and the new earth and all things are made. So we take all the way from the begin before sin began, its origins in heaven, the creation and purpose of earth, the war f- playing out on earth, all the way to the end of time and the second coming of Christ and things made new again. And now the next three slides, let me set the stage. The next three slides will be that place in the Old Testament, and you're going to hear the audio for the next three. The place in the Old Testament where... God comes to Sinai after the golden calf, threatening to wipe out the people and sounding angry, and Moses pleads with him to not wipe out the people. You all know the story? And how oftentimes have you heard it to see God's mad? If you mess up, God, he's got to be... Pl- Watch how we tell the story. But before Jesus could implement the little theater to teach his healing plan, a crisis broke out in heaven. Satan stirred up more doubts amongst the celestial beings. He alleged that God's ways don't work. He pointed the angels toward the events just transpired in Egypt and said, Look at those people. They are beyond healing. Even after signs, wonders, and miraculous delivery from Egypt, they prefer a golden calf. They don't want God, and they can't be restored to God's ways. God is misleading you. So God, knowing the heart of his friend Moses, knowing exactly how Moses would respond, turned to the angels in heaven and said, Watch this. If you doubt my plan to heal humanity, if you fear they are beyond regenerating in love, 
Then watch Moses. And don't forget, what you are about to see is the condition of a man who, 40 years ago, murdered an overseer. But watch what happens now. And we watchers, along with the cherubim and seraphim, were riveted. We watched as Jesus, sounding angry with the people, went to Moses. He made it appear he was going to wipe out the Hebrews, and he even offered to make a great nation from Moses' descendants. And what did Moses do? Amazingly, rather than accepting exaltation for himself, Moses revealed that selfishness had been replaced with God's selfless love. He immediately argued for God's reputation and offered his life to save the people. Jesus turned to the angels and smiled. Trust me, my methods work. Every human who trusts in me will be fully restored back to my design of love. So this is now available. The Google version is right away. The iOS version today, tonight, tomorrow, something like that will be available. But how you can help us, uh, and this week I had a lady that uh, got the Google version a couple weeks ago. She came to my office and she downloaded it onto the smart tablets that her kids have. And she goes, she said to me, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. Every day my kids come home and the only thing they want to do is they want to watch that story. They go right to their pads. They don't, they don't want to play on their video games anymore. They want to watch the story and they just play it over and over. And she said, and I've been watching it. And this Bible finally makes sense to me. I, I've learned so much from it. So um, these are things you can do to help us if you'd like. To help spread this. We're hopeful that this it will be a very non-threatening way to help people see the beauty of who God really is. And, uh, and so, um, oh, and well, one other thing. Yeah, I forgot to say this. We've also made these postcards up that you can take and hand to people. We'll tell them a little picture and a little about it on the back. And we've got a bunch of them up here, and they're in packs of of 100, and you can take, and you can take partial pack, whole pack, whatever. And if you're online and you want this to share in your church, just email us an address, and we will ship you out a pack or two. If you want two packs, let us know. We'll ship these out to you for no cost, and you can share these and pass those around. So come up and get some of these as you leave today and share around. There's uh, over 200 pages. I, I didn't time it out exactly, but I think it's about two, two and a half hours to watch it straight through. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yes, in the back. Sam asked, what about those of us who do not have a tablet? Any smart device. It'd have to be an iOS or a, a Droid device. So it could, be a, it could be a phone or a tablet, either one, if you have a smartphone or a tablet. But that's the only two platforms. It's, it, and it's not in the bookstores. It's in the app stores. It has its own app because these are highly image intensive and to make it really quality we had to make their own apps for each one it cannot be watched on the computer at this time because it would have to have an actual different um, formatting in order to do that so you have to have a smart device to watch this and we've decided uh, to price this at $1.99 all right so let's go ahead and close with prayer Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We love how beautiful you are, and, and we know that uh, we have often had misunderstandings, and, and, and there's a battle waging in this world for, for the truth about you. We ask that you will bless us in the endeavors that we've put forth, that we can be effective in sharing this message with you, and you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.